Good morning, City Life. It's my great privilege to be with you again this morning, if only by means of this video, to share God's Word with you. I want to assure you that uh, I've been praying for you, my wife and I, for these many long months of COVID, that God would keep your church plant strong, and that uh, He would give you a, a, a great vision for what He wants to do through you there in the great city of Jersey City. When Pedro asked me to speak this morning, I almost immediately thought about the 34th Psalm, a psalm that David wrote coming out of a period of great difficulty, in fact, the hardest time of his life. And I thought, it fits so well. It's meant so much to me during this crazy time of COVID-19. I want to share it with you. Let me read for you the first 10 verses of Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Father, help us this morning as we come before your word. Teach us what you want us to learn and help us to listen and respond in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm an old man now, but one of the things I love to do almost more than anything else when my children were little was to read books to them. I love doing that. But my children grew up, and my youngest son is now 45 years old, and it's no longer appropriate for dad to read books to his kids. Fortunately, I have some grandchildren. I have uh, 10 grandchildren, and they also liked to have me read to them. But they're growing up now, too. The youngest of them is 13 years old, and he's not all that interested in Grandpa reading to him. I now have four great-grandchildren, but they live in Australia. So I almost never get the chance. So I wonder if you'd indulge me this morning and let me read to you just a portion of one of my very favorite children's books. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good Day. And I think you'll understand, after I've read it, how it fits with this passage of Scripture that I want to share with you. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. When I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater into the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. 
at breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his cereal box. And Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his cereal box. But in my cereal box, all I found was cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be car sick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of a sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. At singing time, she told me I was singing too loud. At counting time, she said I skipped 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his second best friend and I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on attack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the, the ice cream falls off and lands in Australia. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was. Because after school, Mom took us all to the dentist. And Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week, he said, and I'll fix it. I said, next week, I'll be in Australia. On the way downstairs, the elevator door closed on my foot. And while we were waiting for Mom to get the car, Anthony made me fall where it was muddy. And when I started crying because of the mud, Nick said I was a crybaby. And while I was punching Nick for saying I was a crybaby... Mom came back with the car, and she scolded me for having fighting and, and being muddy. I'm having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. When we picked up my dad at the office, he said I couldn't play with his copy machine, but, but I forgot. He also said to watch out for the books on his desk, and I was really careful, all except for my elbow. He also said don't fool around with his phone, but I think I called Australia. My dad said, please don't pick him up anymore. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate limas. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. I had to wear my railroad pajamas, and I hate my railroad pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue, and the cat wanted to sleep with Anthony, not me. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. Ever had a day like that? How about a whole week or a month or a whole year like 2020? Have you ever felt so desperate that you didn't know where to turn or what to do? Well, that's about how David felt in the days and weeks before he wrote Psalm 34. And I believe there's a great deal that you and I can learn today from, from this song of thanksgiving that had its origins in the most desperate and frightening experience that David ever had. Now, the superscription, that is the introduction to the psalm, tells us everything we need to know. It, it says, it's a psalm of David 
when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Now, the account of this period in David's life is told in 1 Samuel chapters 19 to 21. So let me quickly tell you the backstory. David was serving in the court of King Saul, the very first king of Israel. Saul had started out as a godly king, but he was headstrong, and he refused to listen to the advice of the prophet Samuel. As a result, the Lord rejected Saul as king, and Samuel secretly anointed David as the future king of Israel. Now, David served Saul well, but he'd become a champion in the eyes of the people. After all, he was the hero who killed the giant Goliath. The favor of God and man was on him, and even though he was married to the daughter of the king, Saul was jealous of David, and he decided that he would kill him. Now, Michal, David's wife, found out about her father's murderous plans. So she helped her husband escape just hours before the assassination squad arrived. Jonathan, her brother, the king's son, was David's best friend. And he confirmed that the king was absolutely determined to murder David. And he communicated that knowledge. So not knowing where else to go, David fled to the priest Ahimelech. He didn't want to involve the priest in his troubles, so David told him that he was on a secret mission for the king. He needed food, and he needed a weapon. The priest gave him the consecrated bread from the table of the Lord, the only food he had. And he also gave him the only weapon that he had. It was the sword of Goliath, the same sword that David brought back as a trophy on the day that he killed the Philistine giant. David deceived the priest only in order to protect him in case King Saul found out that he'd been there. But when King Saul found out, he murdered the priest anyway. So now David's a fugitive. He's lost his wife. He's lost his best friend. The king's secret police are hot on his trail. The priest who helped him has been murdered, and David's afraid, and he's desperate. So he asks himself, is there any place at all where I can be safe from Saul? Any place he won't or can't look for me. And he thinks the only possible place would be in the court of the Philistine king, King Achish. The Philistines called all of their kings Abimelech. So he's got two names, Achish and Abimelech. Now, I can almost hear David half crazy with fear and desperate beyond all imagination talking to himself. But Achish rules in Gath, and that's the hometown of Goliath. Yeah, but, but there's nowhere else Saul can't reach me. Maybe they won't recognize me. Well, maybe not. But they might recognize Goliath's sword. Now, the Bible doesn't actually tell us this, but I'm pretty sure that this was not a decision that David carefully prayed through. This was David reacting, just like most of us do when we get in a crisis in which our very life seems to be at stake. So he goes into survivor mode, you know, outplay, outwit, outlast, 
and he ends up in Gath, hoping that Achish will protect him, hoping that no one will recognize him. But somebody does. Hey, that stranger who just came into town, he looks familiar. I think that's the Israelite who killed Goliath. That's David. And look, he's got Goliath's sword. Take him to the king. And now David's gone from the frying pan into the fire. But he's got one last trick up his sleeve. In the ancient world, there was a common belief that it was bad luck to harm crazy people. You left mad men alone because sometimes the people that seemed like they were out of their minds were actually listening to the gods and they were messengers of the gods. So just to be sure that you didn't offend the gods, it was common practice not only in the Philistine culture, but in many other ancient cultures as well, to leave the mentally ill alone. Don't bother them. That way you're not taking any chances of offending one of the gods. So David, seeking some way out and knowing no other way out of his dilemma, decides to act like a madman. He starts talking to himself. He's slobbering down his beard. He's acting crazy, scratching at the walls. And I rather suspect that at that very same time, he's desperately praying Oh, God, get me out of this mess. I'm really in trouble now. Please help me. And it works. Achish, the Abimelech, or king of Gath, takes one look at David, and he says, don't I have enough madmen in my own country? You got to bring me a foreigner? Get rid of him. And he drives David away. And David takes refuge in a cave in the wilderness, a cave called Adullam. And the book of 1 Samuel tells us that while David was doing that, hiding in the cave, God began to send him a ragged band of followers from all over Israel. It says, all those who were in distress or debt or discontented gathered around him, about 400 men. This is the original Robin Hood story. And now that we've got the story behind the psalm, we're in a better place to learn what David wants to teach us. Now, Psalm 34 is a psalm of thanksgiving. But unlike most of the psalms in that thank you category of Scripture, psalms that tell us why we should be thankful and then call on us to worship the Lord, this psalm and a couple of others like Psalm 90, which was written by Moses himself, are teaching psalms. So they begin with a testimony telling us why the psalmist is thankful. In Psalm 34, that part takes the whole first 10 verses, the part that we read this morning, and then moves on to instruct us in wisdom, the end of the psalm. This is a psalm of thanksgiving, but it's also a teaching psalm. And the central idea of Psalm 34 the one thing that David wants to be sure we do not miss is this. When you find yourself in a difficult place, when you're having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week, day, month, or year, the very first thing you should do is praise the Lord. What? 
Wait a minute, Pastor. Are you telling me that when I'm caught between a rock and a hard place, between the king of Israel and the king of the Philistines, when I've run out of money, run out of resources, run out of time, and I find myself all alone with no one to help me, that my first response should be to praise God? Well, yeah, that is what I'm saying to you. Because that's exactly what David says in this psalm and what the Bible consistently tells us to do. Think about these verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will concerning you. How about James 1.2 Consider it pure joy, my friends, when you face trials of many kinds. Or how about 1 Peter 1.6? In this, he's writing to people who've just been scattered throughout the Roman Empire by the first great persecution, the one that Nero started. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a season you may have to suffer grief through all kinds of trials. Friends, David did not begin his flight from King Saul with praise and joyfulness on his lips. He began his flight in abject terror. Panic and fear were the emotions that he was feeling. And those are the emotions that you and I are all too familiar with. Maybe especially now, at the end of 2020 and moving into 2021, when the epidemic is now getting worse than ever. But this experience taught David some things. And he wants us to learn what he learned. So, here are three reasons that you and I can rejoice when all the odds are stacked against us. Here's reason number one. We can rejoice because God hears our prayers. I sought the Lord, David says, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. At some point in the midst of this terrifying experience, David cried out to God, probably one of those foxhole prayers that you and I so regularly shoot up to heaven when we suddenly realize that we're in trouble that we never saw coming. Oh God, help me now. Hear my prayer. He does. I could stop right now, and if I were with you, I could ask this one simple question. How many of you have ever prayed a foxhole prayer like that when you were in big trouble and you know right now without a shadow of a doubt that God heard your prayer and he delivered you? I'm pretty sure if I was there with you right now, a whole bunch of people would put their hands up and we could spend the entire rest of this morning and this afternoon hearing some amazing testimonies. And I could tell a few of those stories myself. Friend, you might think right now that God has abandoned you. That he listens to other people's prayers, but he's not listening to yours. And I understand why sometimes you might feel that way. David certainly did, and I have. But then he says, this poor man called, and the Lord heard him. And he saved him out of all of his troubles. If you've stopped praying now because you don't think God's listening, please know this. 
God can hear you. He does hear you. And when you are so deeply mired in the mudflats of life that you never, ever would be able to extricate yourself, God can deliver you. If you call on him, he will hear you. Here's reason number two. We can rejoice even in the midst of terrible trouble because we're never really alone. David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Now David thought he was all alone in the city of Gath. And again, when he was in the cave at Adullam. But now he understands that he was never really alone. The angel of the Lord was with him. Now, we don't have time to do this this morning. But if you were to study that phrase, the angel of the Lord, in all of its occurrences, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, you would discover that in most, if not all, of its occurrences, every time you see that expression, the angel of the Lord, it's talking about none other than Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate appearance. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is the one about Elisha. Uh, the prophet has been telling the king of Israel whenever the king of Syria is about to attack his country. So every time Syria attacks Israel, they send the whole army down from Damascus or some portion of it. And the entire Israelite army is assembled at the very point they're trying to attack every time. So the king of Syria decides there must be somebody who's a spy in my court. And he spends several weeks or months trying to figure out who the spy is, and he can't do it. So finally he comes up with a new strategy. He puts a spy in the court of the Israelite king. And after a while, his spy comes back and says, I know what's going on. Every time you plan an attack on Israel, this guy, Elijah, this prophet guy, he tells the king, where you're going to attack. And so the whole Israelite army shows up. And that's what's going on. How he's getting the information, I I don't know. Maybe he gets it from his God, but that's what's happening. So the king of Syria says, okay, we'll solve this problem. And he sends his entire army down to surround the house of the prophet Elisha. And uh, one morning, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, gets up and he opens the window and he looks out And he closes the window real fast, and he comes back and says, Elijah, we got a problem, Elisha. The entire army of Syria is camped around our house. Elisha goes to the window, and he looks out, and uh, he says, no problem. What? There's a big army out there. No, 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 you don't understand. The ones who are with us are greater than the ones who are with them. And his servant thinks he's crazy. So Elisha prays this prayer. He says, Lord, let him see what I see. The whole story is in the book of 2 Kings. It's a great story. I'll let you look it up and read it in 2 Kings 6. But uh, when his servant looks again, now he still sees the entire army of Syria camped around their house, but now he sees another army, an army of angels, camped around the Assyrian army. And uh, I'll let you figure out the end of that story. It's a great story. 
A friend of mine told me a story just like that one time. His name is Spence Sutherland, and Spence and I were professors together at the Alliance College of, the, of Australia, the College of Theology in Australia, back in the 1980s. And before that time, Spence had been a missionary in Vietnam. He was one of our Alliance missionaries who were there at the beginning of the war in Vietnam. And when the war came, they all stayed. They didn't come home. Uh, they could have, but they decided to stay. And so they were there all through the war. And one time in the middle of the war, uh, Spence's ministry and most of our Alliance missionaries were working with some highland tribes, Garai tribesmen up in the, the central highlands of Vietnam. And at one point during the war, Spence and one of his other missionary friends decided they needed to get up to one of those central highlands villages. And they were all set to go when uh, some of the American army that was there, and there was a base not far from them, said, you, you can't go there. Right now there's a huge troop movement. There's a lot of Viet Cong and there's a lot of North Vietnamese regular army up in that very area right along the, the road that you'd have to travel up to get to that village. If you get up there, go up there, you'll probably never come back. You'll either die on the way or you'll get captured and be a prisoner of war for the rest of the time. So they thought about it and, and after a few days, they prayed, and they really needed to get up to this village. So they decided God really wanted them to go. So they prayed up, and they got in their Jeep. And it was a three-hour drive from where they were up into the highlands through the jungle, a jungle that they knew was infested with Viet Cong and North Vietnamese troops. So they went very cautiously and, and, and with fear and trembling. But they felt they had to go, so they got in the Jeep and they started up the road. Several times during that three-hour drive, they saw movement in the jungle very close to the road. And twice at least, they were sure they'd seen enemy soldiers. But at the end of the time, they, they emerged from the jungle. They got to the village they were going to, and nothing had happened. And they were able to do the ministry that they were called on to do there. They stayed a couple of extra days in the village while the, the fighting went on around them and, and passed them by, and the troops moved to another area. And then they came back to uh, their home base. A week later, Spence happened to be at the military base near where they were stationed. And uh, they asked him if he would talk to a prisoner of war that had just been taken, a, a Viet Cong soldier who had been captured and who had been injured, and they needed to know really what his needs were and what some of his problems were so that they could get medical attention for him. And no one could speak Vietnamese, but Spence could speak it fluently. So it was something he had done once or twice before. Spence went in and spent some time with this prisoner of war and began to assess his needs and find out uh, what kind of help he needed. And in the midst of that conversation, it became apparent very quickly that this man had been taken captive along that same road that Spence and his buddy had just driven. And in fact, that he had been taken prisoner only a day or two after they had driven up that road. And so Spence began to sense something was going on, and he began to ask a few questions. And uh, pretty soon the prisoner of war said, 
I saw you. You were in a Jeep with another American, and you were driving up the road to that village. And Spence said, yeah, I was. And the man said, well, we were under orders to kill or capture any Americans who came up that road. And Spence said, well, if you saw us and those were your orders, why didn't you attack us? And the man said, we wanted to, but we were afraid of all of those warriors in shining robes around you. (laughs) Spence got very quiet. And then my friend said, very quietly, we thought we were all alone. Friends, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you will never be all alone. Remember his last words? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Now here's reason number three. When we're caught between a rock and a hard place, we can rejoice because God is our deliverer. He delivers us from all fear. I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. The very first enemy we always encounter when life delivers us one of those unexpected blows is fear. Of all our American presidents, FDR was probably the master of the one-liner, at least in the 20th century. And his most famous one was this. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Now, I'm not entirely sure that that's the only thing we have to fear. But it sure is the first thing. Because fear paralyzes us. It distorts our view of reality. Sometimes it makes people do really foolish things, like running for safety to the king of the Philistines. But when you reject fear, and instead take time to rejoice in the fact that the Lord God is your God. You put yourself in the place of Psalm 27, which starts out with these words, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? And of course the answer is nobody. And he delivers us from all of our foes. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And he delivers us from all want. Verse 9, those who fear him lack nothing. There have been, and I suspect there will be times, when I will not have had everything that I want. But the promise of God's word is that he will always give us what we need. Paul said it this way. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I know that our time's already gone. But I think I need to add just one more thing to our list of things from which God will deliver us. We've confined ourselves to just the first 10 verses of this psalm, the first half. But if you look at the very last verse of this psalm, 
verse 22. This is what it says. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. That means that he delivers us from condemnation. See, when David looked back on all that he'd experienced, I think he had some regrets, some big regrets. His lack of trust in God at the beginning of this episode led him to run to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob, and lie to the priest about what was going on. Now, I think he lied to Ahimelech in order to protect the priest. When Saul found out that David had been there, if he realized the priest didn't know what it was all about, he'd probably just let the priest off the hook. But that's not what happened. Saul killed Ahimelech. In fact, he killed Ahimelech and all of Ahimelech's family except for one son who escaped and later hooked up with David in that cave at Adullam. And not only did he kill all of Ahimelech's family, he killed all the other priests at Nob and all of their families. David's lie didn't protect the priest at all. So killed him anyway. And David had to live with that. He could never go back and change it. There would never be a way to make it right. Now, we all have some regrets like that, don't we? Mistakes and, well, let's call them what they are, sins. Things that we're sorry for. Things that were repented of and from which we've turned away. But we can't go back and make everything right or correct everything because sometimes the people involved are gone from our lives just like Ahimelech and the priests were gone from David's life. We don't get a mulligan. We don't get a redo. But we can receive from God his forgiveness. After yet another big mistake, another sin in David's life, a time when he acted out of impulse and then fear, it had to do with a lady named Bathsheba, and her husband Uriah. David wrote these words in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. I rather suspect that some of us here today have had some terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days or years, and that acting out of fear and out of desperation, we've done some things that we horribly regret and from which we need the deliverance that can only come from knowing that our transgressions have been forgiven and our sins have not only been covered, but taken away. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to take away our sin. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now I hope we understand. When you're caught between a rock and a hard place, the very first thing you should do is praise the Lord. Why? Because God hears you and God is with you 
and God will deliver you from all of your fears and from all of your foes and even from all want and even from your sin. That's good news. I don't know how much longer we're going to have to deal with COVID-19 and all of the attending details and ramifications, the economic stress, the loss of life, the loss of jobs, the inability to meet together on Sunday morning to worship, and now the specter of an even more contagious version of the same disease coming down at us. But I know this, we have a God who hears us, who's with us, and who will deliver us from all of our fears and our foes, from all of our wants, and even from our own sin. And that, my friends, is very good news. Father, thank you for this great truth from your word. Help us to understand what David learned, to learn it from ourselves, and to enter into this new year of 2021 with great joy and with great expectation and with the spirit of thanksgiving because the Lord God is our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.